that I'm paralyzed any more than somebody can change the color of their skin. Those are two realities that exist no matter what we do. And those, societally speaking, can place limits. But I think that when we find that inner strength to say, but you know what? I'm not going to carry the weight of somebody else's perception of what my capabilities are. That's what makes me limitless as a person. Somebody has a feeling or thought about who I am, what I should accomplish as a person, and they want to box me into this box. That's a reflection of their own unconscious bias, their own insecurities, and their own ignorance. And it's not for me to carry. And so I kind of look at the idea of being limitless as just that, it's, it's a way of being. It's a way of carrying ourselves in who we are confidently and unapologetically and not allowing other people to box us into these constraints. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by my co-host, Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Mallory Wegman has proved to be one of the most inspirational figures in the sport of swimming, and it isn't because of her achievements, which alone are incredibly impressive, but rather it's because of how she has fought back time and time again after tragedy. Mallory Wegman is a Paralympic gold medalist, 15-time world champion swimmer, author of the book Limitless, and founder of the social impact agency, the TFA Group. Mallory has broken 34 American records, 15 world records, becoming a 12-time world champion and two-time Paralympic medalist in the London 2012 Games. Mallory is now training for the 2020 Tokyo Paralympic Games, and today she'll be joining us on the show to share her inspiring journey in not only overcoming tragedy, but ultimately becoming limitless. As we go through our lives, we all face times of adversity. Perhaps now more than ever, we're witnessing firsthand that stressful situations and uncertainties affect different people differently. So how is it that individuals and groups of people keep going and growing through trauma? One key to answering this question is resilience. According to the American Psychological Association, or APA, psychologists define resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats or significant sources of stress. Resilience is our bounce back ability from problems and stresses. But the APA say that as much as resilience involves bouncing back from difficult experiences, it can also involve profound personal growth. And in many ways, resilience really boils down to our ability to adapt and grow from adversity. Mallory Wegerman's story is an incredible real-life example of resilience. Here Mallory shares with us her journey so far and the remarkable adversity she had to push through on her way to Paralympic gold. I grew up in Minnesota and I'm the baby of three girls. And so I followed in my sister's footsteps to the sport of swimming as a young kid. 
And that was really where my passion for the sport began. You know, seven-year-old Mal running around on a pool deck and cheering for my sisters and just falling in love with all things swimming. And that carried me all the way through my teenage years. I graduated high school in June of 2007, and I swam for our high school team all four years and served as captain my senior year. And then I had a turn of events after high school graduation. In January of 2008, I went in for what was to be my third and final epidural injection for back pain. And I never walked out that day. I was left paralyzed due to complications from the procedure. And, you know, for me, that was my sudden moment of impact. That was the day and that that really kind of changed my course. And I didn't know what life post-injury would look like. I didn't know what living life with a spinal cord injury would mean or being a woman with a disability. Those were all things that I had far more questions to than answers. And after I got out of the hospital, I felt like I came out into a world that at the time I didn't feel represented. It was like everywhere I went, I was overexposed and people looked in my direction and saw my chair, but they didn't see me as a person. And everywhere I turned and looked, I didn't see myself represented through media, entertainment, in store displays, advertisements, I mean, on down the line. And so fortunately for me, I found the sport of swimming pretty early on in my injury. It was just two and a half months after my paralysis where I learned about the Paralympic movement for the first time, thanks to a local newspaper article, because trials for Beijing were here in Minnesota at the University of Minnesota pool. And so I went that night just on a limb with my sister and watched. And two days later, I was back in the water for the first time. And, you know, it still startles me that for me and my journey, I was completely unaware of the Paralympic movement. And that was really eye-opening that There was so much room for growth here in the U.S. to raise awareness and increase representation in our society. And so for the past 13 years now since, I've become a two-time Paralympian. I'm a Paralympic gold and bronze medalist from the London Games. I'm now an author of my book, Limitless, that just released at the beginning of March. And I'm a speaker and co-CEO of a social impact agency and production studio. And, And my life has moved forward in so many ways. And I appreciate January 21st, 2008 in a very different way now that this much time has passed. Mallory's extraordinary resilience is rooted in her resolve, perseverance, and sheer grit. In her book, Limitless, she shares the lessons she's learned by pushing past every obstacle, expectation, and limitation that stood in her way. When I started writing Limitless, it really anchored it in my why to that question. Like, why am I doing this? Because I think for anything in life, when we can root it in a why, it helps us sustain it in the long run. And it actually, in my opinion, makes us more resilient through the process because when we have those hard moments, we can bring ourselves back to that and it kind of anchors us in what we're doing. And so when I went and sat down to start this process, I really, really wanted to write Limitless in a way that would share my story so it could empower others to honor theirs. And that was like the root of Limitless for me from day one of this isn't about telling my story. This isn't about the timeline of Mallory Wegman's life. I mean, yes, that is in there because it's a memoir style, but the root of it also is having that conversation with the reader and, and empowering the reader to understand that, you know what, we all have circumstances. Every single one of us has circumstance, but we are more. 
And that's what being limitless is. It's about understanding. It's a way of being. And our circumstances don't define who we are, what we'll become. The choices that we make throughout do. And so that was my biggest motivation in writing this. And knowing, I think, for me, I look back and and I journaled this entire experience. And my earliest journal I found after my paralysis was three days after in the hospital. And I looked to those pages and saw such a terrified 18-year-old girl who was just looking for her way in this world after an incredibly traumatic experience. And I also see her strength and her tenacity and her grit. And I see heartbreak and pain and all of those things. And I realized as I navigated through those journals, as I was writing Limitless, like those feelings are so universal. While the circumstances around them might be different for each person, those feelings of feeling unworthy, of feeling unseen, of questioning and doubting ourselves, of being our biggest champion and having those extreme moments where like, we feel like we can conquer the world. Like we all know that. And so I really wanted to share my story in a way that would empower others to find their own light and their own strength within. It's so important probably now more than ever for us to kind of all individually step back and give ourselves a space to acknowledge there's not a timeline we are supposed to follow. And I think sometimes we're made to feel that way, right? Like there's so much information coming in at us from so many different places and social media is fantastic, but then you also get lost in that. And there's the comparison and it's like, you see other people that are happy. So you feel like by this point, you should be happy. And it's just not how it works. And I think that in my own journey, one of the most powerful things that I learned so I could move forward into who I was supposed to be as a, as an individual and as a woman was realizing that, that healing is not chronological. And if I am happy or sad or overwhelmed or anxious or joyful or content or at peace or whatever it is, it's okay. It's not wrong. It's never wrong to feel how you're feeling in the moment. But I think sometimes we convince ourselves it is like, I shouldn't be sad today because enough time has passed. I shouldn't be overwhelmed right now because I've worked my butt off and I asked for all these opportunities. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be. And like, we kind of go down that rabbit hole. And so I really think that, especially when it comes to healing, that was my biggest lesson and something that, you know, 13 years later, I still grieve things from January 21st, 2008. But 13 years later, I also hold gratitude for January 21st, 2008. And neither of those things are right or wrong. The latest labour force survey in the UK found that roughly half of disabled people are in employment, compared with 81% of non-disabled people. And the picture in the US is even starker. According to the Bureau of Labour Statistics, in 2018, just 19.1% of disabled people were employed. The size of the disability employment gap varies by country, age, gender, disability and other factors. And although the gap is reducing, disabled people are still much less likely than non-disabled people to be in work. Unfortunately, workplace disability discrimination does contribute to this disparity. Research for the Fair Treatment at Work survey showed that disabled people are much more likely to experience unfair treatment at work than non-disabled colleagues. Disability discrimination can show up in lots of different ways. It can be deliberate or unintentional, obvious or subtle, one-off or repeated. Let's unpack it with some examples of types of discrimination. 
Direct disability discrimination is treating someone less favourably because of their disability than someone without the disability would be treated in the same circumstances. Indirect disability discrimination can be harder to recognise. This happens where there's a provision, criterion or practice which seems to apply equally to everyone, but which actually puts disabled people at a particular disadvantage compared with people who don't share their disability and where there's no justification for this. Another type is discrimination arising from disability. This is where, again, without justification, a person is treated unfavourably because of something that arises as a result of their disability. For example, their need to take time off work for medical appointments. In some countries, as well as prohibiting discriminatory practices, the law puts positive obligations on employers to remove certain barriers to disabled people's participation in the workforce. In the UK, this is called a duty to make reasonable adjustments, and it's a legal obligation aimed at levelling the playing field. Here, Mallory shares what companies can do to tackle the barriers disabled people face at work. Yes, we need access. Like the barrier of access for most people in the disability community, especially if you are a wheelchair user, that's probably the most predominant, like, Physically getting in a door is probably the most difficult demographic to get in a door, physically speaking, infrastructurally. But the hypothetical door exists as well for individuals that have disabilities that maybe aren't visible to the eye. And so I look at accessibility, inclusion, and equity as kind of the table, right? And so accessibility is making sure that everybody can get to this table, if you will. Inclusion is making sure that there is a seat for everyone at that table. But what we should all be striving for is equity. And equity is making sure that each voice is heard and accounted for at the table. And it shouldn't even be the gold standard. It should just be what's normal, but it's not right now. And so how do we create that? And I think that it comes with a willingness to be open, heightened communication, and that understanding that no one of us is superior to the other. Like we need to get that notion out of our heads that if we look at somebody who carries a different set of circumstances that somehow makes them less than somebody else who doesn't carry those circumstances. And once we can kind of get past that barrier and start addressing the unconscious bias that we all carry, then we start opening those doors. We start getting people to the table. And then the more we're willing to have those conversations about those biases that we carry, then we can start really including people. And once we then change perception through the conversation and move them along, that's when we get equality and equity. And so it's an access point physically speaking, right? But then it's also the willingness to be open and having these conversations that are maybe a little cumbersome and maybe require taking some ownership and being like, whoa, we've missed the boat on this. We just didn't know what we didn't know. And now here's how we're going to be better. Disability inclusion is not checking a box. It's not. There's so much talent out there and it can't be for any sort of demographic that we are making certain, whether it is including women and making sure there's equity for females in the workplace or individuals with disabilities or whether it be racial equity. Like it can't just be this, oh, there's something we're missing. Let's make sure we make a space for it and we'll go check that box when we get there. It's got to be a culture shift. And I think we have the power to do that. And I think from the limitless conversation, one of the things that I think is really important is 
being limitless doesn't mean that you're going to live a life without barriers. At the end of the day, I'm still in a wheelchair. And if I get to a flight of stairs, there's only so much that I can do about that flight of stairs when I'm on four wheels, if I'm by myself. But I think that limitless is more of that mental and emotional awareness of how you yourself choose to show up in your relationships, in who you are as a person, and in the things that you do and are passionate about. And we will all face barriers in our lives that I can't change. When we experience inequality at work, we often internalize it. We're encouraged to believe that our differences are barriers to be overcome. Here, Mallory shares what she has learned about overcoming the invisible barriers to her success. The fact that I'm paralyzed any more than somebody can change the color of their skin. Those are two realities that exist no matter what we do. And those, societally speaking, can place limits. But I think that when we find that inner strength to say, I'm not going to carry the weight of somebody else's perception of what my capabilities are. That's what makes me limitless as a person. Somebody has a feeling or thought about who I am, what I should accomplish as a person, and they want to box me into this box. That's a reflection of their own unconscious bias, their own insecurities, and their own ignorance. And it's not for me to carry. And so I kind of look at the idea of being limitless as just that. It's, it's a way of being. It's a way of carrying ourselves in who we are confidently and unapologetically and not allowing other people to box us into these constraints. For me, the biggest thing that I went through in my early 20s specifically, and even recently in the last four or five years, was finding the strength in my voice. And I'm human, so I have emotions just as much as any one of us does. We all do. So words do cut and they will no matter how strong you are. But I think when I finally gave myself permission to understand that it's not my job to make everyone else around me accept me, it's my job to accept myself, that's when I started getting unboxed, if you will. And I think that there's a lot of strength in that and understanding your own worth as a person. Because when you have that confidence and that understanding, you start charging through doors that you didn't even know existed because you begin paving your own path. You're not waiting for permission for others to do it for you. And so I think there's a little bit of that, whether you live with a disability, whether you're a female in a male-dominated workforce, whether you have faced racial inequalities, maybe you grew up in a family of poverty and you were told your entire life that these doors aren't open for you because of your financial means. Whatever that circumstances that you faced, when you can step back and honor who you are and what you've traveled, and you can find the confidence in your voice and who you are as a person. And it's not that you don't care what other people think. It's just you don't give them the weight to determine what you will become and who you are as an individual because you become rooted in your own truth and you're not looking for other people to validate that truth. It's important to recognize that resilience is different to avoiding or ignoring difficulties. Resilience is about our ability to acknowledge our setbacks, grow from them and move forward. And it's also important to know that resilient people still struggle, fail and feel discomfort. 
The APA say that, in fact, the road to resilience is likely to involve considerable emotional distress. That phrase, road to resilience, is worth pausing on because resilience isn't a binary skill that you either have or you don't. Greater resilience can be built through experience. So even if you don't think of yourself as a particularly resilient person, and of course we all have different levels, there are proactive steps you can take to build, top up and protect your resilience stores. Here Mallory shares what she has learned about building tools to help overcome adversity. I think there's a lot of layers to that onion, if you will, in just finding that inner strength. And I think we all have it. It exists within each and every one of us. And oftentimes we don't find it and tap into it until we really need it, until those sudden moments of impact hit in our lives, until we face that adversity. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of reframing perspective that helped me and taking a step back and realizing there's strength and recognizing that we aren't meant to do this alone in life. We have a community and people that surround us for a reason because they're there to help lift us up. And they were a huge part, especially after my paralysis in the early days. But even now, all these years later, as I'm training for my third games and everything I'm trying to do outside of the pool, my community is is a huge piece of that. So I think that, first of all, recognizing that, you know, we, we aren't meant to do this alone and to realize that asking for help is not a weakness. It's actually probably one of the most courageous things we can do. Also, honoring where we are in our journey and honoring what we've survived to get to where we are in our journey. I think that keeping a pulse on what we've traveled through as individuals helps us build our strength to realize like today's hard maybe, but you know what? Six months ago, I went through that really, really dark time and I made it to today. So I know I'm strong enough to get through today to get to tomorrow because I survived that. And so there's a difference between honoring your journey and living in your past. And I think that honoring your journey is really important to continue to muster up that strength and almost give yourself that self-talk of like, no, but look at where I am right now. And, you know, I also think taking the guilt out of it. We all carry guilt for how we feel. Maybe it's that we feel we're having a tough day, but then we put the positive swing of, oh, but it can always be worse. And so then now we feel guilty about feeling sad because we don't have it as bad as somebody else has it. And we do this comparison thing that starts to go on. And I just think that when we can kind of take that guilt out of it and realize that what we're feeling is real and valid, especially after trauma, I think through that so much of those early years of like, I felt guilty if I was happy too soon because I was supposed to still be grieving. And then I felt guilty if I was sad too long after because I should be moved on by now. And I think it's just realizing that our grief cycles aren't chronological. They're not linear. They don't go in this perfect little order. A week after adversity, you could find joy and happiness while experiencing pain and heartbreak. We're complex. We can experience more than one emotion at a time. And 13 years later, we can still have a hard day. And that doesn't mean we're living in our past. It just means we're human. And today, for whatever reason, I'm reminded of the journey I've traveled and it's it's kind of bumming me out a bit. And so I think when we look at grit and resilience, really kind of like peeling back those layers and finding those different layers of strength. And I tell people all the time, you know, having resilience isn't about the speed in which we recover from things. It's about the long-term game. And it's about choosing to get up every single day Finally, Mallory shares her one fix for advancing equality at work. We have to address unconscious bias. We have to. 
And when we're able to do that, we start opening doors, not just literally, but figuratively. And so I know when I wheel into a room, more often than not, especially professionally speaking, I am the only individual with a visible disability. And oftentimes, depending on the environment I am in, I'm probably maybe even the only female in the room. One thing that I've had to work for myself is to the conversation we've had about changing my own voice and my confidence and really being rooted in that and not being swayed by the environment around me to kind of mold into one thing or the other, but stay rooted in who I am. But at the end of the day, no matter how strong I am in that, no matter how strong anyone is in that, if you are rolling, walking, stepping, whatever your mode of transportation is into a room, and you are maybe the only individual with a disability that's visible and seen in that room, or maybe you're the only female or the only one from a racial standpoint in that room, you are up against unconscious bias, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. And I think the only way we get past that is if we start talking about it and we start acknowledging that it exists. And in that vein, then we start to spark that conversation. And when we spark the conversation, then we start to change perception. And that's what we're really aiming for is changing perception so we can create a more equal playing field, if you will. But it really starts with having the conversations and addressing that perceived elephant in the room. And I think until we do that, no matter what we do infrastructurally or otherwise, or what procedures and protocols we put in place, it's gonna keep happening until we have those conversations. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you found Mallory's insights as inspirational as Michelle and I did. In these difficult times, we need stories like Mallory's to remind us all of what's possible in the face of adversity. In June 2020, according to the Office for National Statistics, one in five adults in the UK was suffering from depression. This had doubled from pre-pandemic numbers. Worryingly, the Centre for Mental Health, an independent UK charity, forecasts that up to 10 million people will need new or additional mental health support as a direct consequence of the pandemic. If you're struggling at all with mental ill health, please know that you're not alone and please do seek out specialist help and support in your area. For many of us, there's so much we can look to apply to our own lives from what Mallory has shared about overcoming obstacles. The APA say that like building a muscle, increasing resilience takes time and intentionality. I think Mallory proves beyond any doubt that this is very much a commitment worth making. Before you go, just a quick reminder to check out the 100 Actions for Equality campaign, which provides 100 ways you can take action every day to create a more equal working world. Just visit www.100actionsforequality.com. Thank you for tuning in to our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our weekly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again, and I'll catch you all next week.